Hello there. Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley, this day and every day. Oh, that changed a little bit. On a previous episode, you said, at least I think I'm Randy Woodley most of the time. Yeah, somewhere in between all that, yeah. That's true. That's a good point. (laughs) Hey, today we are talking about fast history and the danger of um, skimming over some of the details. Exactly. Randy, before we get into that, because I'm looking forward to reading you this thing I found, harvest time on the farm is always an interesting thing to me. What does that look like these days? What's what's coming off and going into the the cellar? Yeah, so it's a it's a you know a time of joy when you plant stuff uh, and keep it watered and weeded and all that and watch it grow and. When it's time for harvest, it's just a real happy, joyous time. And yeah. so we had our uh, last Saturday of the month work day this past weekend. Yeah. And uh, we were able to harvest uh, potatoes and corn, green peppers, uh, Hungarian wax peppers, eggplant, choke cherries, uh, oh, wow. squash, yellow squash. Yeah, so, uh, and we were able, oh, um, Swiss chard, yeah, all of that kind of stuff, and um, and then able to share all that with all the volunteers. So we had probably a dozen volunteers out here that day helping, and, and it's just a joy to harvest and a joy to share, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and everybody went home happy, and now we're starting to hear back from them, hey, I, I tried this new eggplant dish, and oh my God. tonight we're having corn and you know, blah, blah, yellow squash. And so wow. it's, uh, yeah, it's a uh, really cool to, to be able to share in, uh, our, our motto from the beginning of Ailey farm was plant, grow, harvest, share. Right. So we want to hmm. share, uh, our bounty as it's called with, uh, yeah. with other folks and bless them. Yeah. That's fantastic. Tomatoes, cherry tomatoes, uh, Oh, we have so many. Oh, my gosh. We just we sent kids around picking them and adults picked them, and it still looks like nobody's ever picked them. So. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, my community garden, the only thing uh, so far anyone has shared with me this year are zucchini and tomatoes, both of which I already have, but I'm not going to turn it down, you know. <laughs> zucchini. That's a funny one. You, you remember the uh, Garrison Keillor's uh, uh, radio show? What was that yeah. called? The uh, Lake Wobegon. Yeah. He talks, uh, I remember one of the episodes talks about during zucchini season in Minnesota, right? Okay. And uh, everybody's trying to get rid of their zucchini. And <laughs> he talks about the church people before they go to the Lutheran church. They, you know, they, they sneak boxes of zucchini in other people's cars to try and get rid of it. You, know, you walk out of church and you got a backseat full of zucchini. That sounds right. That sounds right. Wow, I didn't realize that was uh, not just a regional thing. Apparently, that's uh, across the board. You can only use so much zucchini. Oh, that's true. Although, you know, my sister, who's visiting from the East Coast, has found an amazing recipe that if you dry out the zucchini, so get it really dry, you can air fry it as fritters with just a couple other ingredients, and they get crispy. And they're actually, honestly, they're the best like appetizer I've ever had that somebody you know made that didn't kind of like chips, potatoes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
we're, we haven't yet to try it yet, but um, because we just heard about it a couple of days ago. But because uh, it, it's it's like how much eggplant can you use too, right? Right, right. Well, we just found a, a recipe for eggplant bacon. What bacon? Yeah, and so oh. we're anxious to try that one out too. Ooh, you know, if you put that on like a smoker and it mm-hmm. soaked up a little of that like hickory flavor or sherry flavor, that might be good. Yeah, so this is a sort of they. They paint it, uh, cut it in thin strips, paint it with uh, like, you know, liquid smoke and smoked paprika and maple syrup and uh, soy sauce and a little Worcestershire sauce and and salt and pepper. And uh, and then you put it in the oven and, you know, turn it over after 20 minutes, 20 minutes until it's. And uh, we couldn't taste it through the video. Right. (laughs) But he says in the. In the uh, the sandwich, yeah. like BLT, but it's an ELT, uh, it tastes just like bacon. And I'm like, okay, well, that's worth oh. a try, you know, because bacon yeah. costs more than eggplant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it, yeah, if it candied up a little bit, like if the sugar, you know, crystallized, that might be really nice. Yeah. Hey, so this is going to be episode 89 as we creep our way towards 100, where we're dreaming of a a live broadcast party. Here's the background story. So about a month ago, I was out at the coast of Oregon for a family reunion. We stayed at an Airbnb that had a nice library. I was up early in the morning and I was rummaging through their library and I found a, a a guide for mountain bike trails in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest. Mm. So I was reading it with great interest. And, uh, and then I came to a trail system that's just a little ways away from here where I live in Portland, uh, in the Malala area. Right. And it gave the history of the region. So keep in mind, this is not a history book. Okay, so that's the disclaimer. Interesting Malala, though, and I'll tell you why, so I don't forget. Yeah, They think the oldest structure from European peoples yeah. is found in Malala. It's a Russian, uh, uh, a log cabin that was built by Russians probably, uh, and I don't know the exact date, but it's uh, probably in the late 1700s. So, okay. Really? Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. Quick question about that. I'm very curious. Do they think that Russians came over the Pacific, that direction? Or did they come? Oh, really? So they didn't come the same as the settler colonial Europeans from the East? No, they would have sailed down from, you know, like Alaska and that area. So, Oh my gosh, that what that's even more interesting. Huh? Yeah. I'm fascinated by that stuff. Here is a quick history of Oregon, Randy. Now, you know a little bit about the history of Oregon. A little bit. <laughs> so I want to run this past you because I have a theory and I want to I want to see at the end. I want to see what you think of my theory about the danger of skimming over history too quickly. OK. All right. Here we go. Here's how the article begins. The colorful name of Oregon cities, counties, parks, and natural landmarks depict a piece of the state's history that is truly unique. Many of the names of Oregon come from Native Americans. In fact, the earliest record of the word, quote, Oregon, unquote, is found in an excerpt from a journey proposal written in 1765 by an English officer named Major Robert Rogers. You ever heard of him? Yep. 
Oh, really? Okay. So let me read the excerpt and then I'll stop. The route is from the Great Lakes. I'm going to turn the page here. Toward the head of the Mississippi and from thence to the river called by the Indians, Oregon, spelled O-U-R-A-G-E-N. So that's the excerpt that they give us from the, the journal, the proposal. Mm-hmm. What do you think so far? Uh, I think the um, first red flags that go up for me is that the, I, I think Oregon is actually a Shoshone word in the old Shoshone language uh, that meant like land of plenty, something like that. Okay. That's, that's what I've read. I mean, okay. these are sort of theories, but. All right. Let me go back and continue reading. Oh, wrong page. I'll have to edit that later. Okay. Over the next century, quote, Oregon became a familiar term for explorers visiting the Northwest. And in 1848, the name was officially adopted when Oregon became a U.S. territory. In 1859, Oregon became the 33rd state to join the Union. Yeah, February 14th, 1859. Interesting. I like how they call the explorers visitors. They visited the Northwest. <laughs> it's a very generous term. All right. So, we, so yeah, the, the big picture, people are, are sailing in and out of the coast, right? Both coasts from very early times. Yeah. Um, and, and actually pre what we would call pre quote unquote prehistory times. So I'm, we're talking about Japanese, Chinese, um, uh, Danes and uh, Norwegians and, you know, all kinds of people are coming to and fro these coasts for millennium. Okay. Huh. The world was not um, a sort of a stationary place like we imagine it back then. We had people, you know, even the Hawaiians were traveling the largest, you know, earth area, the Pacific Ocean, all the way across from, you know, all the way to South America and the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, people were on the move back then. Wow. Okay. Continuing reading. During the Great Oregon Migration, which began in the 1840s and spanned the next 30 years, more than 50,000 immigrants traveled four to six months over 2,000 miles of open country to reach the Oregon Territory. I like that they call it open country. Right. Yeah, what does that mean? Uh, I don't Is know. It, that's supposed to be uninhabited? <laughs> that's what I'm wondering. Okay. All right, listen to this. That they made it... In one piece, despite suffering through hardships of disease, scorching heat, storms, and starvation, can largely be attributed to the assistance of the Nez Perce, Cayuse, Umatilla, and Walla Walla Indians, who often guided them across hazardous rivers and traded them salmon, vegetables, and fruit. Yeah, I guess they're not accounting for the many wagons and wagon trains that never made it right from the famous video game the oregon trail right well uh the shoshone and paiute people uh hijacked a lot of those and they never made it but the th it's an interesting time you can go on and i'll tell you more about those times and why why okay. we hear a different history than we that actually happened yeah oh okay 
That's interesting. I want to, I do want to talk about that. Back to reading. Many of these travelers ended their journey in Oregon city, which I bike through on a regular basis. They later established small towns throughout the Willamette Valley. One of these towns is called Malala founded in 1875 and named for the Malala Indians. The word Malala is thought to be a combination of two Chinookian words, Mulex, M-U-L-E-X, meaning elk, and Olala, meaning berry. The early settlers who lived in the Malala Valley, uh, the Indians who lived there, the Malalis. The Malalis, or Malalas, were warlike tribe who rode swift ponies and instigated numerous conflicts with settlers and other local Indian tribes. They gained a reputation as one of the fiercest tribes in the Oregon Territory. Never heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot of interesting details in there that I thought we could, uh, you know, pull at the threads of. Sounds yeah. like a justification to get rid of them. That's what they're trying to build to me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, if they're right, if they are uh, warlike, they can't, you know, stay in the vicinity. Well, if they're warlike, then they, you know, they create deprivations, and that means they're savages, right? But the truth is, is that all Indian people had rather have peace than war. Hmm. So they're building into the, the myth of uh, redemptive violence there, as we've talked about before. Yeah. And um, and the fact that they, there's some just quote unquote justification for taking the land. And but we can I, I, I'll fill more in later. Yeah. OK, well, that is the end of the history lesson. And then it moves quickly into uh, 1992 when the Bureau of Land Management marks this project as a. Um, an open land situation and somebody creates this Malala river corridor, uh, that, that is going to, part of it is going to be this multi-use trail. So it moves into the history of the trail. So, so I thought that was an interesting fast forward version of, you know, a couple hundred years condensed down into three or four paragraphs. And while some, let's say much of the material is true because of the selective way it's presented actually paints a picture that might not be as true. Yeah. So let's look at it. And first of all, let's, you know, I mean, many of the listeners are not from Oregon, right? Right. But here's, here's why it's interesting because this is actually the main corridor to the uh, Western expansion. So um, when we talk about the far West and so, uh, the other is the, you know, the um, Spanish and uh, the War of Texas and and that and then the California and the rest. So but but between those two things, those are the main uh, streams of Western expansion. And so um, it, it's interesting to know why the West is so different mm. uh, than the East and what was going on back then. So here's what's happening um, in the era that you're talking about, first of all. The, the first sort of like um, people who were here to stay were the, the fur guys, right? These were the mostly French Canadians, um, Métis, um, 
who were coming out from the uh, the like the 1810s, 1812s, 1814s. And there were three fur companies. There was the American Fur Company of uh, John Jacob Astor. Um, there was the Hudson's Bay, which is the most well-known mm-hmm. and eventually subsumes the rest. And there was the Northwest Company, which was a Canadian company. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, a lot of the people who came out were like, um, there was a group of 25 Mohawk Indians that came out around 1811 uh, and were with the Northwest Company. They were stationed at Fort George, which is uh, now Astoria, um, after uh, the American Fur Company basically sold out to the Northwest Company and then eventually subsumed by the Hudson's Bay Company, which headquarters was in Vancouver, Washington at the time. And um, those uh, 25 uh, Mohawk Métis, mixed uh, Catholic, um, uh, mixed blood folks were what we call voyagers or working with them. And they came out and most of the settlement that occurred as people began to leave Hudson's Bay and other areas was done in what we call the um, French Prairie, which is just outside of Newburgh, kind of between Newburgh, Oregon, and Salem, Oregon. And uh, Shampooey Park is one of the famous places now that's there. Um, And and so all of one of the things that they missed when they would talk about settlement. Yeah. All of the early settlement of the best land and et cetera were either settled by um, mostly mixed blood native people who got along very well with the uh, the Chinookan peoples who were here, um, who were married to native wives, or white men, mostly French Canadian, who were married to native wives. Oh. And so, in other words, the whole place was first settled by Native Americans <laughs> after Native Americans had been here for a millennium, right? Time yeah. immemorial. And so you had these people uh, from all these different ancestries who were coming together here in the North Willamette Valley. Um, and, and most of them were native or native blood. And uh, and they were getting along well with the different tribes. They were attending their ceremonies. They were hiring natives to work for them at different times on their farms. Um, and so we have some of the diaries of those people. And so what happens is in... <clears throat> When the Oregon Trail starts, um, so uh, in the late 40s, uh, they start bringing out these settlers. And uh, there's immediately um, those settlers mostly coming from like the route from St. Joseph, Missouri to Oregon City. Uh, The native people in all of Oregon began to watch them and they were just like, uh, maybe uh, the best way to describe it is through the uh, the guy that was in charge of the Hudson's Bay Company, um, um, McLaughlin was his name. And uh, he said, um, I never saw a native, he said, I never saw an Indian take more meat than he could use while hunting. And I never saw a white man stop killing until everything was dead. And so, in other words, they just used deer and antelope and elk for target practice. And they left them laying out there. One time uh, it was discovered by some native people. And there's a record of this. There was a hundred deer 
in a particular area that one of the ranchers had just killed and left them laying there. Oh my gosh. So what you see then is not only people intruding in your territory without permission and without your blessing, but being very bad guests. And what the Shoshone and Paiute people figured out who were living in central uh, Oregon, southern Oregon, um, was that if we don't kill these people, they're going to starve us to death. And so there was a war often referred to as the Snake War, but that the, the uh, it unofficially uh, started in the 50s and lasted until 1870. Um, but officially, they only have it down for like four years. Uh, and basically, it's the same time as the Civil War, although it was the most expensive war in Oregon history, um, more expensive for Oregon and Idaho governors and territory um, than both the Nespers War and the Rogue River War combined, and they lost more soldiers uh, than they did in both those other wars. And well, why don't people know about it? Why don't people know about famous chiefs like Has No Horse and Chief Washakie at the time and, and other people? Um, because two reasons. One, it was going on during the Civil War. Okay. The, the crux of it was. And um, all the attention was there. Two, they were trying to get people to move out here and inhabit the land so that they could send more protectors, et cetera, and take over the area. So, so um, it becomes sort of a, a, a quiet war, if you will. Um, and a lot of uh, wagon trains never made it um, there. I mean, they are, they're finding like at uh, certain lakes now that are uh, last year during the drought, they're finding like uncovered wagons, right? And it was like these wagon trains that never made it or these wagons um, that never made it because they were killed and drove off cliffs and into lakes and things like that. So holy cow. So anyway, um, so so that was the case. Basically, the native people here were fighting for their own survival. Yeah. And, um, you know, the settlers were coming out for one reason or another. But the unfortunate thing that uh, this article also leaves out was that – as all these mixed blood native people um, were, were buying all this land um, from the tribes and stuff, were trading and doing things like that and settling. Um, when the uh, wagon trains got here, uh, within four years, they had made a number of anti-black laws, anti-native laws and anti-Hawaiian laws because Fort uh, Vancouver had over a hundred Hawaiian families. Oh. Fort, Fort Vancouver spoke 27 languages uh, at the time of settlement. So this is a very diverse area, right? Uh, Until yeah. the people on the Oregon Trail got here and they basically made it the whitest state in the union, right? And so they began to make all these anti-Indian laws, round up the Indians, create treaties, send them out to places like um, uh, Grand Round and other places around the country and basically cause them to be prisoners. Um, this all happened in the 1850s, um, restricted them from owning land. All the native peoples uh, who were mixed bloods began to sell their lands because they were afraid they were gonna be rounded up. And so they would move out and, um, and it became uh, Oregon, uh, what, it, what it has been in its uh, more recent past. So, um, so yeah, it's a, that's a very different history than what you yeah. read. Yeah. Huh. 
Wow. That I'm so glad um, <laughs> that I read this to you. And I, I actually, I knew some of that, but I didn't know all of that. And when you put it all in one place, it paints a very different picture of especially the economic life and the military conflict um, that was going on. It, you know, it gives it a very different tint. Um, yeah. One time the, um, or both the Oregon and uh, Idaho territories um, governors had um, put a bounty on Shoshone and Paiute scalps. Those are related tribes, Shoshone and Paiutes. Shoshones were mostly on horseback and Paiutes not, but um, not always. But uh, so um, uh, $100 for a male uh, scalp, $50 for a woman, and $25 for a child. And, you know, like when you got somebody's scalp, how can you tell what's what, right? Yeah. So uh, so anyway, yeah, that was, uh, and, and the governor of Idaho said that Shoshone's make good target practice. So there was this uh, hatred, right, that was built up between the ranchers and the, the Paiute Shoshone people um, because uh, they were trying to protect their way of life, and, of course, they lost it eventually, right? Yeah. Um, and, the, and they were trying to take it and create another way of life that was not sustainable, and that's what we're suffering from today. Same mentality, right? Yeah. Uh, extract it and use it, right? It does, or, or just extract it. Don't even use it, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting history, and and it became such a, a white bastion of whiteness and white supremacy that you know in the early part of the nineteenth or of the twentieth century, um, uh, yeah, they they much of the government uh, governor senators, et cetera, were part of the Ku Klux Klan out here. Yeah. And they were eventually exposed and taken out of office. But, but uh, yeah, and, and this is why we have this, uh, in Oregon, we have a, a very much a sort of a, like a lot of places, a rural yeah. um, uh, population that is, um, uh, let's just say more Republican leaning and uh, let's just use those political terms in, a, in cities that are more democratic leaning. So. Yeah, it's interesting because when you think of the Klan, you know, a lot of people immediately think of the Deep South in the 1960s. But um, the Klan, you know, to think about it, you know, you, you don't often think about it in Western states necessarily, but it's incredibly pervasive uh, in places like Idaho and Oregon and Eastern Washington. Um, and, you know, that has only surfaced recently for most people to be on their radar, how embedded uh, the Klan is in sort of Western states. Yeah. And that's that's the history of the zeitgeist of that movement of that white supremacy started with the Oregon Trail. So um, huh. I hadn't put that together. Yeah. And the laws were made to keep black people out of Oregon. If you were free black, it was illegal for you to move to Oregon. So one other thing about history I wanted to touch on is these signs on the side of the road that are historical markers. Mm -hmm. One of the things I noticed is that when you only have 100 or 150 words, you know, that you can put on a placard on the side of the road as a historical marker, you know, the economy of words means you have to make certain choices. So like in that article that I just read you, you know, it talked about people being visitors. They visited 
you know, Oregon or the tribes be, being warlike, not, not fighting for their own survival, you know, to, to fight off being exterminated. They were warlike. And you want to say, well, they weren't warlike before you infringed, right? Like, so it's just interesting the, the, the word choice that happens. Well, in these road signs that you see all over, you know, as you drive this country, it's really interesting to look at the choices of words that soften certain aspects of it or elevate certain aspects of it. And uh, the one that really caught my attention recently was there's this cape out on the Western coast, on the Oregon coast that said, you know, this cape was discovered in 18, whatever by this captain. And it was named this because it was such terrible weather and, you know, they didn't know if they would survive. And I'm thinking to myself, certainly this Cape, this geographical, right? It wasn't discovered that day. <laughs> certainly other people knew about it before then, but it's. No, 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 no. You're wrong about that. Native people didn't know about that until it came out in the tour book. Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's the it's those word choices when you only have 100, 150 words, when you too quickly summarize history and you skim over so much of the nuance and detail, even though you might say mostly true things or let's just say true things, but it's in the choice of which thread is pulled out and how certain things are woven together that you can actually paint an untrue picture with mostly true things. It's a yeah. danger. That's called colonization, right? That's the, the whole point of colonization is to um, first of all, um, uh, attribute everything to themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like all the names, it's like Mount hood, you know, like, most native people didn't know it was there right until it was discovered and called Mount Hood. And then it's like, Oh, we have a big mountain here that we didn't know about. <laughs> oh yeah. I never saw that before. Yeah. Uh, the name is actually Waista in Chinook Ooh. and um, it means big mountain, which makes a lot more sense than, you know, it probably doesn't look like, you know, the Mr. Hood or Captain Hood or General Hood or whoever it was named after. <laughs> you know, it looks more like a big mountain. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, there's, uh, and, and so renaming everything is an obsession of the colonizer because they want uh, their history uh, to point to a myth that shows them as the savior and the, you know, everything good. And the people who were trying to prevent that is everything bad, which is also the first rule of war, right? Is dehumanize the enemy. And that's what colonization is. Settler colonialism is a, is a, um, about, you know, dehumanizing the enemy. And the enemy is the people who are the host people. So and whether you call them savages or barbarians or heathen or right. But to give them that moniker, which others them. Yeah. And that's an old trope. I mean, you know, the Greeks were doing it. Uh, the Hebrews did it, and or the Israelites, and you know the Old Testament. Um, the Romans did it. The English were really good at it. Those where we get the word heathen, you know, from the people up in the heather, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, and so uh, the Americans have found a way to revive those tropes and 
Yeah. You know, in uh, in it, but it really began here on this continent with Native Americans. So we yeah. were the culture either. You know, I know that there's a movement amongst um, certain groups to um, do land acknowledgments at the beginning of ceremonies or gatherings. Mm-hmm. And I think that it it's a good first step, maybe, to, you know, acknowledge that this land that we're on had a different name than how we entitle it now, and that there were peoples who were here and to acknowledge their relationship to the land before white history, you know, settler colonialism um, comes onto the picture. But I also wonder about the danger of land acknowledgements as if it's enough uh, to do that. And then to say, well, you know, we've done something here and yeah. There's a part of it that I worry about um, in the in the legacy of settler colonialism of letting ourselves off the hook by being sort of enlightened, um, you know, descendants and doing land acknowledgments. And the words are nice, I guess, but I don't know. Just there's something about it that makes me really uncomfortable if I can be honest. Yeah. So land acknowledgement needs to, you know, generally uh, move from land acknowledgement to land back or mm-hmm. uh, land use or uh, uh, some kind of uh, creating agency mm-hmm. or the native people whose uh, agency has been extinguished in that area. Um, there's a lot of different sort of ways to see that happen, but we would call all of that, right? Um, uh, repatriation or um, reparations. Reparations, yeah. So, um, yeah, so land back or land, I'm sorry, land acknowledgement is, I think, you know, good first step. Sure. It's often done in ignorance and people just like name the tribe that's near them, which may not be even the tribe that was there originally, right? Who, who held that land for, you know, tens of thousands of years. Um, a common one here in Oregon is uh, people in Bend, Oregon. They I've seen churches do land acknowledgement, and they acknowledge the Warm Springs. Well, the Warm Springs are Chinookan people who, in the Cascades also, who lived up on the Columbia River. And the only, there is the, the minor tribe of the three is the Paiutes. That was their land area because it was most of central Oregon was Paiute and Shoshone land. And the Shoshones um, uh, as a tribe uh, don't even live in Oregon anymore, but they were one of the original Oregon tribes, but, but people, you know, it's, it's not, they sort of take the easy way out rather than do their real history or, or hire people who are qualified to actually, you know, uh, come up with the real story. Uh, So that's a problem. Uh, Secondly, it's a problem if, you know, and this is the thing that I get asked all the time. Well, we do a land acknowledgement, but we say the same thing every Sunday morning. And we do, you know, and, and I said, well, if that's all you're going to do, uh, you should just make it easy on yourself. Just put up a sign that says, you know, we acknowledge that this was the land of such and such, and we're never going to do anything about it. And so, um, and then you've, you've covered it. But otherwise, you should be working to continually educate yourself, build relationship with the people who were there. Um, find out what their issues are, um, mm-hmm. helping them empower them, um, trying to figure out how the land could be used again by them 
or land back given to them, um, you know. And so, and all of that takes you know, time and research and, uh, and it has to be worth it. So is it something you really want to do or is it just something that you just want to say, oh, we're politically correct and we acknowledge the original people of the land? Well, acknowledgement is just a baby step, right? Mm. It needs to lead to something more. I'm glad that we've had this conversation. I've learned some stuff, but I know that those who are listening are going to know, want to know, like, where do I go next? All right. I've been alerted to the fact that this is a danger. Where can I look for more information or a better way forward? So people are always asking about like resources, like what are, you know, some other places that we can look to. Do you have suggestions that come to your mind? So it, it depends. There's like, there's no one formula. Yeah. There's no one prescription to fit it all, you know, cover everything. Um, you have to get cultural guides who know the history and understand the history. Um, and so you're going to need to, you know, like hire some native people who know the histories and, um, uh, and, and you might have to like find people who can help you find those people. Right. But um, one of the things I would encourage people to do is watch a, a film that they can watch free. Uh, it's called Two Rivers. Mm-hmm. And it's, it takes place in the town of Twisp, Washington. And so if you put in Two Rivers, Twisp, Washington, it will probably take you to, I think, the cultural center there. Okay. And, uh, and I think on that site, you can watch the video for free. And if sometimes just seeing a model of how that's done well. Okay. And um, inspire people to sort of not not duplicate it, but replicate it, right? Okay. Do something similar, but not because there's, like I say, there's no one formula for this. It's It's got to be an organic process. And um, but one of the things that that will come across very um, uh, poignantly in that film is that the white folks can't try to control it has to be in control of the native people for it to work. And so you'll, you'll see that as you watch the video. Mm. So that sounds tricky because if I'm not in control, how can I know entering in that this is going to work out the way I'm hoping it will? Isn't that exactly how number one, uh, we discover new ways of doing things, but number two, how we open ourselves up to what the spirit is doing because uh, when we're in control, the spirit's not. Oh boy. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, today. Listener, we want to thank you. Please share this with anybody you think might be interested in the conversation or expanding their awareness. Uh, we do appreciate when you share and like, whether it's on Facebook or on other social media. You can always reach out to us at connect at piecingitalltogether.com. For our Patreons, we want to say thank you for your ongoing financial support. We really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do that on Patreon. And uh, we will look forward to hearing some feedback and what this might look like in your neck of the woods. Yeah, thanks for listening.